I'm appalled by the Roe versus Wade decision. I think they've lost their minds. The new justices obviously have an agenda, which they wish to impose on all Americans. I've been an attorney for 35 years, and I have never been more disappointed in the court systems than I am now. Incompetent judges appointed for life and the Supreme Court have made the entire system completely unpredictable. The Supreme Court begins a new term, but the country is still dealing with the fallout from the last one, particularly the decision that led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. According to a Gallup poll, the Supreme Court's approval is at a historic low. 47% of Americans say they have a fair amount of trust in the judicial branch. The previous low was 53%. And 58% of Americans say they disapprove of the job the Supreme Court is doing. Coming up this term, the Supreme Court's docket includes cases surrounding election integrity, gerrymandering, climate change, and affirmative action. We'll get into some of the big cases and talk about what we can expect from the Supreme Court over the next few months, and we'll also discuss the culture of the court and what it means for public trust. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, the fastest way to connect with us is through our text club. You can find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us to discuss is Eric Siegel. He's a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law and the author of Originalism as Faith. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And Leah Littman is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Leah, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with how the Supreme Court has been preparing for this upcoming term, beginning with the confirmation of Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. She took her oath on Friday. Leah, how do you expect Justice Jackson's presence to affect this new term? I think Justice Jackson's presence will give the court an air of legitimacy that, frankly, it is lacking and that it doesn't deserve. Um, Justice Jackson, we saw during the confirmation hearings, is extremely smart, extremely personable. And I think if you look at polling, you know, the American public supports her confirmation and supports her being a justice. At the same time, her presence on the court is unlikely to affect the actual outcome of cases as the court appears poised to further demolish the Voting Rights Act and the use of affirmative action in education and do so much more that the American public will find very dispiriting and upsetting. Eric, when we look at the current makeup of the court, this is a particularly partisan group of justices. How do you think she'll navigate that? I think it's going to be very frustrating for her to navigate that. And there's also seems to be a lot more infighting among the justices than there has been in the past. Justice Kagan has said some things and Justice Alito responded. I want to make one other point about Justice Jackson. She recused herself in one of the big affirmative action cases. And I think that does show to some degree her character because Supreme Court justices are infamous for not recusing themselves in cases where they should. So that's a little bit of breath of fresh air. But I do agree with Leah. It's going to be a very frustrating term for her and for America. And just so we're clear, Leah, what is the process for a Supreme Court justice to recuse him or herself from a case? 
The unfortunate fact is, as Eric notes, there isn't really a process. Each justice decides for themselves, you know, in consultation with their law clerks, in consultation with their assistants, whether they believe their participation in a case runs afoul of, you know, the guidelines that the court has set for itself on recusal. Justice Jackson promised at her confirmation hearings to recuse from the affirmative action case challenging Harvard's use of race in the admissions process because Justice Jackson was previously, although no longer, a member on the Harvard Board of Overseers, Harvard's governing body. And she acknowledged that her presence and participation in the case could give rise to a public perception that she was unfairly inclined to rule for Harvard. And so she vowed to recuse and has since recused. We'll get more into that case a little later. But let's turn to the docket, which includes major cases about elections. And one of those is a case out of North Carolina where Republicans in the state want to restore a redistricting map that was rejected by the state Supreme Court. Leah, tell us more about this case. So this case is an extremely important decision, and it involves a challenge to a North Carolina Supreme Court decision that concluded the North Carolina legislature's map of districts violated the North Carolina state constitution and specifically the guarantee of free and fair elections in the state because the North Carolina legislature drew a map that constituted extreme partisan gerrymandering that gave an advantage to one party, the Republican Party, and potentially allowed that party to stay in office and control the state legislature, even if a majority of voters voted for other candidates and another party. So the North Carolina Supreme Court invalidated that map. And the question that the Supreme Court will answer in Moore versus Harper is whether it violates the federal constitution for state courts to enforce the state constitution with respect to state laws regarding federal elections. That is, the argument in the case is only the state legislature and no other organ of the state government, be it state courts, the state constitution, or other entities, may set the rules regarding federal elections. So, Eric, what kind of effect will a decision in this case have on how states run their elections? Well, I think we have to look at this case in combination with some other cases because the Supreme Court held a few years ago that federal courts have no authority to review partisan gerrymandering cases. That was in the Rucho case. So federal courts are no longer in this business. If the Supreme Court holds that state courts also can't question partisan redistricting, that has enormous implications for how elections are run in in this country. I also think that this case needs to be looked at in the context, and I know we're going to talk about it, of a a challenge to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act coming out of Alabama. And I, I bring that up because it's very likely the court is going to further gut or maybe even rule that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. And if they do that, that means even Congress can't really um, affect the way states do their elections. And the combination of all three of those cases is simply, if, if they come out in those directions, is a huge boon to the Republican Party. And I just want to say that's not a coincidence. 
You're referring there to Merrill v. Milligan. Uh, Last year, federal judges ordered Alabama to redraw its congressional maps. This is after they were found to give black voters less congressional representation. Despite that, the Supreme Court decided back in February to allow Alabama to go ahead and use these illegally drawn maps in the upcoming midterm elections. We sat down with Evan Milligan, the plaintiff in the case, and here's part of that conversation. You know, if one of seven maps features a, a majority black voting age population, then that's about that's 14 percent of our of our maps that even allow for black communities to elect a, a candidate of their choice. Uh, and that's out of step with with what our proportion um, is here in the state. And that this is this is something that at this point I'm less emotionally invested in in terms of the map that that's currently um that's currently in play. I'm very invested in our outreach efforts and in the, you know, the hard work being done by our, our, our attorneys to prepare for October 4th when the case will be argued at the Supreme Court. And really the work we're doing to bring more people into this conversation. Leah, what's being argued on the other side of this case? Why is it being argued that Alabama should be allowed to keep these maps? The argument on the other side is essentially that the United States Constitution prevents Congress or states from considering race when they are drawing legislative districts to ensure that Black voters and voters of color are represented in legislative districts and are represented within our democracy. That is, the argument is it is as unconstitutional for states to consider race when they are trying to ensure you know, proportional representation or adequate representation of voters of color as it is for states to consider race when they are purposefully trying to disenfranchise voters of color and black voters. The argument is all uses of race, no matter the purpose, no matter how benign the ends, even if the goal is to secure multiracial democracy and proportional representation and representation within state legislatures, that it's unconstitutional for Congress to require states to consider race when they are drawing districts. So, Eric, if the Supreme Court decides race cannot be considered when drawing these congressional maps. What options would voters have if they feel their voting rights are are being curtailed or, or they're being disenfranchised? Well, very few options if the issue is that not enough people of color have a chance to be represented in Congress. And that's the problem. And, you know, one thing we can say about this country's history is there has been, you know, centuries of efforts to stop African-Americans, blacks, and and all people of color, really, from voting in this country. And there's just no um, doubt in my mind that the Constitution authorizes Congress to do something about that. The Voting Rights Act, you know, was the culmination of the Civil Rights Movement and Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King. And it's really one of our country's greatest laws. And I just want to mention it, you know, it was... It was um, reauthorized in 2006 by a, a, a unanimous Senate and a Republican president who said we still needed it. And since that time, in Shelby County versus Holder uh, and a few other cases, the Supreme Court has really gutted the effect of the law, which does hurt the ability of people of color and the poor to vote in this country. And I think this term, the court is really going to go full out and pretty much end Congress's power to do something about racial discrimination and voting. 
and I have to say, I think that's a terrible shame and inconsistent with what the um, Reconstruction Amendments authorized Congress to do. As we mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court is revisiting the topic of affirmative action this term. The justices will look at two cases out of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to see if race-conscious admissions violate federal law. Leah, tell us more about what the court is deciding here. So these cases involve a challenge to Harvard and UNC's admissions policies, um, which reflect the kinds of admissions policies that the Supreme Court has now repeatedly upheld. That is, in these admissions policies, the universities consider a holistic look at an individual's application. And as part of that holistic look, they can consider an individual's race when trying to put together a student body that is sufficiently diverse um, for myriad reasons. And it's clear that in these cases, the court is going to say that any use of race, including uses of race that might try to result in a diverse student body or try to rectify previous discrimination, all uses of race are unconstitutional um, under the Equal Protection Clause and violate you know, a federal statute prohibiting race discrimination in entities that accept federal funds. Um, this has been a project of the Roberts Court for a very long time, um, back when the Supreme court heard parents involved, another challenge to the use of race in education, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the somewhat infamous line, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, equating the use of race in higher education for affirmative action and to, you know, attain diverse student bodies with uses of race that were um, cultivated in order to segregate schools in the Jim Crow era. Well, Harvard University President Lawrence S. Bacow says the court's decision to look at these cases, quote, puts at risk 40 years of legal precedent granting colleges and universities the freedom and flexibility to create diverse campus communities, end quote. Eric, what else have universities been saying about this case? Well, a few years ago when the Supreme Court um, heard the Fisher versus Texas case, a similar affirmative action case, I actually talked to a number of administrators at Northeastern universities, and they were terrified. And they said that they're going to find a way to have a diverse class, no matter what the Supreme Court does. I want to say something about the UNC case, which involves the 14th Amendment. Last term, the Supreme Court lectured the American people several times on how important text and history is to constitutional interpretation, how important originalism is, and how inappropriate it is for the justices to take issues away from the states. This term, with this affirmative action, these pair of affirmative action cases, there is no textual or originalist argument supporting the idea that these um, measures that are used to diversify classrooms are unconstitutional. There are only policy arguments. And Justice Thomas, in a number of decisions, has always raised policy objections to affirmative action, but he has never undergone a thorough examination of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. If he did, he would find out, although I think he already knows this, that there were many affirmative action programs, especially some by Congress, at the time of the Reconstruction Amendments. The whole purpose of those amendments was to get you know, the newly freed slaves integrated into society in an equal way. So my point is, if the court does what Leah suggests, and I agree with her, it will, that is living constitutionalism on steroids. And the hypocrisy of that for these so-called originalist justices, frankly, is almost too much to bear. Leah, I'm curious to hear from you more about the court's approach, this, this current court's approach to precedent. 
I mean, this court, frankly, doesn't care about precedent. Um, it believes that it knows better than all previous courts, and it, it will not let previous precedent and previous decisions of the Supreme Court stand in its way. On these affirmative action cases, you know, the Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld and affirmed the ability of schools to consider race when they are cultivating a diverse student body. You know, they upheld um, the program that essentially both of these universities have in Grutter versus Bollinger, a 2003 Supreme Court decision. More recently, they upheld the University of Texas's um, admissions policy that also considered uses of race back in 2016. Um, but the Supreme Court's repeated reaffirmation of the use of race in admissions is not going to stand in the way of a court that is in a hurry, that wants to do and is going to do you know, what it was, frankly, put there to do. And that includes ending affirmative action as well as, you know, gutting the Voting Rights Act and so many other of the things that are on its docket for this term. We got this question from Austin who tweets, will the Supreme Court have any cases which might raise the age to 21 to be able to buy assault weapons? Eric, is there anything on the docket addressing that? Not yet, but I suspect before this term is over, the court might hear some cases from lower courts involving gun rights, including that issue. I will say last term, of course, the court completely changed the law on the Second Amendment. Most lower courts had let most gun laws pass, but with the court's decision last term, that's going to change. And that is yet another example of the conservative justices using living constitutionalism to really put their policy preferences into law. Um, again, that, that, that kind of case is not in the docket now, but I would be, it wouldn't surprise me if it comes pretty soon. One, one more word about precedent. One thing that got a little bit lost in the Dobbs abortion decision from last term that I've been writing a lot about is footnote 48 of that decision. It's a really important footnote where Justice Alito compiled what he called a partial list of Supreme Court cases that have been reversed in the past. His motive there obviously was to show they're not doing anything different. That partial list is two and a half pages single-spaced, and it involves virtually every litigated area of constitutional law. So what I want to say is I agree with Leah, this court is absolutely not going to let precedent get in the way of its policy preferences, but it is also true that the Supreme Court really, since about the 19th century, hasn't really cared about precedent at all. Well, and, I, and that's a real problem. And, and I want to better understand, Eric, when you say this court is going to put their policy preference, preferences into law, is that any different than what previous Supreme Courts have done? So, so this is where I'm going to self-identify as a progressive, because I think that's just honest to your listeners. Um, but I am a different kind of progressive. My perspective is the Supreme Court has always put its preferences into law. And that's because our Constitution violates a fundamental rule of democracy, which I think is not controversial. Never, ever give a government official unrevealable power for life. That's a really bad idea. No other, country, no other free country in the world does that. And our Supreme Court is an institution where the so-called judges, I actually don't think they're really judges, um, have unrevealable power for life. If you don't and think they're judges, what do, what do you think they are? I think they're a hybrid political legal institution. I know this is hard for the American people to hear, but there is no court in the history of the world 
like ours. And what I mean by that is a court made up of life-tenured justices with an incredibly old constitution. We have the oldest written constitution in the world governing a country that is incredibly hard to amend. So you give people all this power. They cannot be fired. They have a vague and old constitution that we can't amend. And we've gotten to the point where we expect constitutional amendments informally to come from the court. And that's not how a democracy should work because we can't hire them and we can't fire them. We got this tweet from Ivy who says, I'm nervous about the North Carolina case and what it will mean for our voting rights. Living in Texas, where they're already making it as difficult as possible and thinking it can get worse? Yikes. And Kurt emails, I know it really isn't possible, but if the United States was able to conduct nationwide referendums, maybe we wouldn't have issues like this. We're discussing the Supreme Court's upcoming term. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation about the Supreme Court. Well, while speaking at a religious freedoms conference last month, Justice Samuel Alito responded to foreign leaders who've been critical of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. What really wounded me was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the <laughs> United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. Well, despite this temptation, I'm not going to talk about cases from other countries. Uh, All I am going to say is that ultimately, if we are going to win the battle to protect religious freedom in an increasingly secular society, we will need more than positive law. In the Wall Street Journal, Alito also said, quote, saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line, end quote. Now, it's rare for justices to respond to criticism in this way. Leah, why do you think Alito is being so vocal? I think, frankly, Justice Alito feels a perpetual sense of grievance and victimization whenever he is criticized, whenever his decisions are criticized. I mean, we saw, you know, the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan making remarks about the role of the Supreme Court in our society when they gave public speeches to bench and bar conferences or at law schools. And some of these remarks came in response to questions. Justice Alito, by contrast, literally emailed, apparently, a comment to the Wall Street Journal. So to have justices just issuing comments to the media is, I think, itself, you know, crossing some sort of line um, or, you know, departing from what was you know, previously understood to be the usual way in which the Supreme Court communicated with the public. But I think Justice Alito, like the other justices, you know, sees the Supreme Court's tanking public approval ratings and they want to continue doing what they're doing without facing any consequences for doing so. While speaking at an event at the Stryker Center in New York last month, Justice Elena Kagan said this, quote, I think judges create legitimacy problems for themselves, undermine their legitimacy when they don't act so much like courts and when they don't do things that are recognizably law, end quote. So this is a, a markedly different stance than what we heard from Justice Alito. Eric, what do you make of these divisions within the court itself? Well, I think they're interesting. Justice Kagan went along with some decisions she did not agree with over the last few years, saying basically in a concurring opinion, um, I don't agree with the result in this case, but I'm going to follow precedent because that's what judges do. 
I think she had been hoping to, you know, to, to prevent Roe versus Wade from being overturned. When she couldn't prevent that, I have no doubt she felt frustrated. I want to say that Justice Alito has crossed many lines in the past. A few years ago, when the masterpiece cake shop uh, case was coming to the Supreme Court involving uh, a Colorado wedding cake artist who didn't want to do a same-sex wedding. He went around the country and talked to religious groups and talked about how religious freedom is being um, threatened. That's really inappropriate when there's a case on your docket or coming to your docket involving that very issue. The other thing is Justice Alito going to Rome to defend the Dobbs opinion I don't think the, um, you know, I, I think that's a little bit inappropriate given the Catholic Church's stance on abortion. And I don't think it was a coincidence that he decided to go to Rome to make those statements. Uh, and both of you are law professors. How are you talking about the Supreme Court and its role in your classrooms right now, Eric? It's very challenging to, to teach constitutional law right now. Uh, One of the things that I do is I make sure the students understand the black letter law because that's really important for both the bar exam and as citizens and everything else. But I also use, I think most law professors who teach constitutional law use it to teach critical thinking because the Supreme Court's way of deciding cases, and I think this has always been true, is to say, well, here's the text, here's the history, and here's the conclusion. The problem is that conclusion almost never follows from text or history, and what goes unsaid are the policy preferences of the justices. That's a nonpartisan critique. I think that's true for both sides. So I teach my students how to read a Supreme Court constitutional law opinion in a critical way so they'll be better lawyers. But I will say, it is very frustrating to teach a course in law at a law school that many of us don't think really involve law at all. Leah, what about for you? So I actually started teaching in fall of 2016, and I taught constitutional law for the first time in January 2017, right after Donald Trump was inaugurated as president. And so I think back then, right, the writing was kind of on the wall about what was going to happen to the Supreme Court and to our legal institutions as we knew it. Um, So yes, it is important to teach students the law as it is. It is also, frankly, a useful exercise to show them constitutional law as, you know, not really law at a time when they are learning what law is and the reasoning in the court's decisions, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense of the relevant precedent of, you know, original meaning of constitutional text, you name it. Um, And I think it is important to give students a, you know, wide ranging historical perspective on what the Supreme Court has been and what it is now. Let's go to our voicemail. Here's a message we got from Sarah in Hastings, Minnesota. I feel that it has become extremely politicized and at this point probably needs to either be dismantled or expanded just to ensure ethical equity. I find it very sad that politics has entered this esteemed institution and is causing biased rulings um, that are not benefiting the majority of people in our country, including women and minorities. But I think at this time it is really necessary to look at reforms to ensure true ethical standards are adhered to within our Supreme Court. We also got this message from Philip, who emails, given the current quagmire, the only solution is to bring the number of justices to 15. Some will call it court packing. I call it court balancing. Uh, For both of you, are are there reforms you'd like to see around the Supreme Court? Eric, you you mentioned the, the issue with lifetime appointments. 
Yes, I would like to see life tenure abolished. Again, I want to emphasize, other than maybe Iceland, we are the only democracy in the world with a Supreme Court that has life tenure justices. I've been saying for a long time that in my perfect world, and I understand this is somewhat of a fantasy, we'd have an uh, even number of Supreme Court justices equally divided among Republicans and Democrats, and then we can get an independent in there if we have to. And the original number, by the way, was six. So if one believes in originalism, an even number isn't a problem. There has to be a way to weaken this institution that doesn't require a constitutional amendment. And that is very difficult to conceive of. Um, But Congress could change the number of justices if the president signed on to it or the Congress overrode the president's veto. And that needs to be done because the court is now really badly out of whack. But first and foremost, we need to end life tenure. You know, Eric and Leah, when you when you zoom out and you look at the current state of public opinion around the Supreme Court, what are your what are your concerns about what this means for our democracy as a whole, Eric? Well, I, I think there is some possibility that sometime in the future the court will get so far away from left-center, right-center voter that the states, the people, or the president might decide not to obey a Supreme Court decision. That did happen, and that has happened a couple other times in our history, but if it happened today, I think that would lead to a serious constitutional crisis. I do think that in this age of the internet, more and more Americans are coming to see that the Supreme Court as an institution, not who's on the Supreme Court, not who's on it, but as an institution is flawed in some very fundamental ways. I hope we can, and Leah is exactly right, the flaws of that institution need to be addressed. We're looking at all of the institutions. Our constitution is very, very old. And it was written at a time when, of course, we had slaves and women couldn't vote and so on. I think it's time to look at all of our organs of government, state and federal, and decide if they really fit the times we live in. Leah, what about for you? I think that it is very concerning to have the Supreme Court behaving in such a way that its, you know, esteem in the eyes of the public, its role in the eyes of the public is declining because we do need a court that interprets the laws. That's just a function that needs to happen. And so if this court is doing so many things that undermine the public's confidence in it and its ability to carry out those functions, that is a major concern for our functional system of government. And, you know, it's hard to say exactly how that risk might materialize or what that will lead to in the next one year, two years, five years, 10 years. But there's no question that the court's behavior, and in particular, you know, it is undermining our other institutions and making them less representative is a major cause of concern and a major source of democratic decline. That's Leah Littman, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Also with us, Eric Siegel, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law and author of Originalism as Faith. Eric, Leah, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.